So, welcome. Welcome, everyone. It's really wonderful to see you all here. I see so many familiar, beloved faces out there. And those that we don't know, we will really look forward to meeting you through the, the time of the retreat. Some introductions for those of you who don't know us. This is John. This is Akinshanu. Why is that funny? <laughs> right. <laughs> here, here we have Luis. Luis, if you just start there. Luis will be leading the, the mindful yoga sessions during the retreat, and we will talk more about those as the retreat goes on. And quite obviously, the one that is left is me. I'm Christina. <laughs> So first I want to really just applaud you for getting here. I know that for many people in their lives that are often very, very full and busy, sometimes the hardest part is actually getting on retreat. All the things you have to rearrange, you know, who's going to feed the cat, you know, who's going to cover for you at work, you know, who's looking after the kids, you know, all of those things. And you know, I hope in landing here and arriving here, we, we all recognize that we, we do this practice, actually, not just for ourselves, but for the person who's feeding the cat and looking after the kids and taking out the garbage and covering for us at work. So this evening, we, we want to talk a little bit just really about the format of the retreat and a kind of overview and I know that many of you have obviously traveled quite a bit today to get here and probably maybe already wilting a little. Um, so we will try not to keep you too long, but I can't promise, I can promise you that on my behalf, but not necessarily on the part of my <laughs> beloved colleagues. <laughs> Some of you know them by reputation. <laughs> Those of you who don't will soon get this joke. Okay. okay, so one of the first stories I think that many of us inherit about the life of the Buddha is actually a, a story of renunciation. We hear the story of, of a young man you know, after coming face to face with the existential human dilemmas around aging and sickness and dying, facing the very universal human vulnerabilities, decided to leave the familiarity, in a way, the comfort and predictability of his life, and embark on a journey. About embark on a journey of questioning, exploring, investigating, without actually knowing what the outcome of that journey would be, knowing that it was a journey that didn't necessarily have a, any guarantees, that it was a, a step somewhat into the unknown. And I think this points to a quality almost of a sort of 
what I call a, a kind of positive discontent or almost a wholesome desire. You know, many people who come on retreats are not necessarily coming on retreats because their lives are filled with torment and anguish. I mean, that might be true indeed for some of you. But many people who come on retreats, I think, are, are experiencing this sense almost of, of a whole, well, yes, a wholesome desire and almost a positive discontent. It's not necessarily that one's life is all broken or, or a disaster, but it's a wholesome desire that really looks towards a sense of possibility. It's really willing to explore the capacity of our hearts and minds as human beings for very profound freedom, for very profound peace, for very profound clarity, where we're interested not just in surviving or enduring, but in truly thriving and deepening. And there's a very, very big difference between those two. And some of you might recognize that, that wholesome desire, almost that positive discontent in your own reasons for being here. And this is not in any way, you know, a rejection of life or a rejection of the world. But it, and it can include a recognition, appreciation of all that we are fortunate to have in our lives in terms of relationship, in terms of meaning. But there's something also in that exploration which is about our, our investigation of, of depth, discovering an inner peace and an inner freedom which is really not dependent upon the world of conditions, that is, a world that is innately, innately unreliable, and unpredictable. I think renunciation is a very big word, and it might be not one that any of us use a whole lot in our normal day-to-day -day conversations. Um, we might imagine renunciation involves some huge dramatic gesture or, you know, so, uh, or an act of will in some way. But I think, you know, we could consider how many, how many gestures of renunciation or letting go were actually involved in coming here. You know, your, your willingness to actually let go of the familiar and the predictability of your life and, and yield into some uncertainty. The willingness to let go, perhaps, hopefully, of the expectations of what should happen here or what your retreat should be like or what you should get from your retreat, it would be a big favor to yourself to have some willingness to let go of that one this evening. The willingness to, to let go, as you may have already noticed in coming here, in, in your capacity to be totally in control in your, of your environment. You know, as, as adults going back into our lives, you know, we, we would find it almost a little embarrassing to confess that, you know, for seven days our lives were governed by a bell, you know, rather than what we feel like or what we want or what we don't want. But the willingness to let go of that, that sense of controlling our environment, 
we let go of, of some of our comforts, possibly, in being here, the comforts of our, our usual avenues of distraction, our phones. But hopefully there's something deeper that we let go of. We let go, or willingness to let go, of many of our habits that really don't serve us well. When I think of renunciation, I, 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 I almost think of it about a, a willingness to travel lightly. A willingness to travel lightly in our lives and, and here on retreat. To know actually what is essential and what's really not essential. And I think probably many of us can recognize what it feels like not to travel lightly in this life. You know, burdened by preoccupations and obsessions and expectations and demands and needs and planning (laughs) and rehearsing. I think we know what it feels like not to travel lightly. And I, I think this practice has, has a lot of engagement with that exploration of what it does mean to actually really put down, really learn to release what doesn't serve us well. And that journey of, of renunciation is actually going to continue right through your retreat. As you, you, know, you sit with your mind, you sit with your heart, and you actually really begin to discover that the habit patterns, the psychological, the emotional habit patterns that don't serve you well, the thoughts and the moods that don't serve you well. And we learn to recognize that so that we can honor and cultivate the essential and what does serve us well our capacities for clarity, to find some stillness, to find the collectedness of our own hearts and minds. And I think sometimes in the busiest times of our life, we probably dream of being in a place like this. You might discover it doesn't take too long (laughs) before you think there's a better place to be. When the, the sort of doubts begin to creep in, you know, and the fantasies of, a, you know, I really should have gone to the beach. You know, that would have been a better choice. You know, what am I actually doing here? Getting here is uh, perhaps one of the most challenging parts. It's certainly a challenging first step. Yet there's another step about what we, a reorientation for being here, about what really it might help us even right from this first evening of the retreat to reflect on what would it help us to put down so that we can travel more lightly here. The habits, the worries, the obsessions, the, the overdoing, the exaggerated responsibility, the habits of comparing, evaluating, judgment, so that we can cultivate what is essential. I'm going to introduce a word tonight some of you may very well be familiar with, but some of you not. We, we have this word from the Pali, the early recorded language in which the early teachings were recorded, of bhavana. It really translates as, as to bring into being or to cultivate. We often translate that word as meditation, which I think is a kind of a flat word. 
But if we think about to cultivate, to bring into being, that is really our concern here. We're cultivating and bringing into being our capacities for, for peace, for kindness, for compassion, for stillness. This is why we are here. This is our, our invitation. This is, almost, this is the journey we are making here. And I personally find it's really helpful to place that focus really in the, in the center of our attention to kind of remember what it is that we are concerned with cultivating. I am not going to be the first one who goes over my allotted time piece. A kinchino. Would you like a... Good. One of the difficult things to renounce is uh, our relationship to self and to who we think we are, we ought to be, we prefer not to be any longer. Um, and we'll have a few things to say in the course of the week on this topic. Um, I'd like you to acknowledge that going on retreat evokes notions of what is happening here. This is going to be a life-changing event or nothing is going to happen. I just sit here and then it continues. Nothing continues to happen. Or usually I take five days to come over sleep, to overcome sleepiness because I, you know, I know myself. So if you see such thoughts come up, uh, just I'd recommend you habitually put them into scare quotes. Yeah, this is what it says. This is not the truth. It's important that we learn to relate to our patternings and our habits and our perceptions of ourselves with some, a little tongue in cheek. You know, there's usually something to be learned there, but generally it's not what it says. Yeah. It's important to, to learn that skill. Our being together here is in many ways unusual. It's slightly artificial as retreats are. Retreats are a strange mixture of uh, orchestrated introspective exercises and um, somewhat orchestrated external movements. So much of our retreat consists in slowing down things, in ritualizing things. And since ritual hinges on repetition, we often respond to repetition with automatic pilot. You know, things that are repeated in our lives are often mm, answered by a decrease in uh, attentional focus. So it's important that we figure out how to be able to repeat things without this effect of decreased awareness. Both the routine and the ritual hinge on repetition. There is a tremendous power in repetition. However, while the routine operates with a diminished type of awareness. The ritual actually is the repetition with the greatest and most careful quality of attentional focus remaining present and continuous. You will have noticed that you're not alone here. So uh, re retreats are collective experiences and it's 
it's important that right from the beginning you enlarge your notion of bhavana, of meditation, to include other people. Otherwise, you'll be suffering. So I would encourage you to think of whatever is happening from you know now to the end of this course, basically as being part of your meditation, as being part of your bhavana project. And uh, that includes the manifestations of what other people do and how they look and the sounds they make and the moves they make and their speed uh, at which they move. All this I would request you to uh, consider as part of your meditation. Um, our being together obviously hinges on our willingness to be circumspect, to be kindly and circumspect. So we have some ground rules. Some of them, uh, one of them, uh, these ground rules is basically be here. You know, this whole thing hinges on you being present and actually engaging with a schedule, engaging with teaching, engaging with exercises. We assume that you have plenty of ideas who you are and what meditation is, and you may have received uh, meditation instructions longer than, than, uh, than I've been practicing meditation myself. Who knows? Um, However, it is of use if you actually join in and apply yourself, not to what you think, who you are and what you need to do, but what we suggest. That creates an atmosphere, it creates a milieu of intros collective introspective strength. Yeah? We're all responsible for the atmosphere we build. So being present, uh, being uh, aware of what's happening around me. We're not interested in turning you into meditative mummies. So if your neighbor falls over, we're grateful if you're actually receiving him or her falling over. If somebody falls asleep, you know, compassionately wake them up. It's not that you have nothing to do with these people and turn them into meditational obstacles. Yeah? That's not the idea. Although we encourage you to focus your attention on your own process, because that's where you have the most power to gain insight and transform unhealthy patterns and develop healthy patterns, we would also recognize that, you know, we can help each other quite a bit, even though, and this is important, even though if we are silent. Yeah. So silence is a, a strangely artificial concept. As soon as we have groups of people, people who are uh, sharing similar interests, the most natural thing is to speak to them. We address them. We, we say, hello, I'm here. I see you're here. I smile to show that uh, I enjoy your presence or you, you, you don't have to worry about me. I'm, I'm benevolent. You know? We do all kinds of little rituals by speech. And retreats do not encourage this. Contrary, we make an agreement that we're quiet. We don't go for walks with each other. We don't... Uh, we don't talk, we, we don't write notes to each other, we're not trying to get to know each other during this course. What you do after this course is up to you, but while you're here, we're encouraging you to focus 90% of your attention to what's going on in your mind. Okay. And that is slightly artificial, it goes slightly against the grain. So we ask you to hold that impulse, to contain that impulse, to communicate. Now, that may have very different um, effects on you, depending on how your socialization went. Uh, silence may be 
a highly pleasant experience and silence may be not a highly pleasant experience. Yeah, that hinges a little bit whether you've grown up with five noisy brothers and um, <clears throat> you're quite happy to not be talked over by them. Or you, you know, you may have had a disapproving parental figure sitting uh, quiet at the table in full of reproach and unexpressed threat. Yeah, so your experience of silence will be a different one. However, we would encourage you to support the collective introspective atmosphere by doing your best to not talk, to not draw attention, to not address people in ways that takes them out of their introspective tasks. We've, uh, you've heard from Brian, we have a little ritual to give up your phones. We're quite serious about this. While we, we promise not to sell or destroy your phones, or we uh, would encourage you to part with them uh, because it's uh, increasingly difficult to not be connected to the world of social media and the comforts and the horrors of digital interconnectedness. To study some other types of interconnectedness, we need to at least temporarily give up digital, digital interconnectedness. I would also like to encourage and end with that. Basically, be, be open what's happening. Yeah. You will meet your own process. You, as relational beings, you will be triggered by the presence of other people, triggered by teachings, you will be triggered by being with parts of yourself that may become more obvious as the days go on. And I would like to encourage you to just receive whatever that process offers to you. This may not be what you think should happen, or this may not be what you have planned, but just receive, try to receive this and try to stay your own friend in that process. Yeah. I'm very c concerned that people remain their friends. Uh, in introspective exercises, that they don't turn into their judges or into their, um, you know, identify with their superegos or um, find the darkest corner in their mind and um, try to muckrake uh, what happens in the dark recesses of your mind. You, you engage creating wholesome conditions you meet whatever your mind presents and that's the grist for your mill that's where you work with if that is not what you have liked or you feel you have subscribed or you think this is what vipassana is supposed to be doing you you meet it anyway because it's important that you engage with that process in the way where it presents itself and not according to what you pl your plans have Speaking of plans, sometimes it's, it so happens that we have um, parallel programs in our minds. Yeah? So we, have, we need to come to decisions by the end of the week. We need to do so much running a day. We, you know, we want to embrace a few other practices which are not necessarily here on the schedule. And um, obviously they, these alternative programs, they tend to collide with the official program. And the... I would like to encourage you to just put down your alternative programs. Make them conscious right now 
and put them down as a first act of renunciation. Um, there is a power in this little schedule we have devised. Um, many, many people have gone through this. And we would like to invite you to risk, l risk letting go of your self-construct and of your alternative programs to the extent that you can give yourself in an undivided way to this program here. So, have a good retreat. Thank you. Okay, well, I want to wish you a big welcome um, as the first thing. And really, I just, before I get into what I really want to talk about, just kind of just say that as a reflection, we're all here on a journey, aren't we? And each retreat is a journey that we engage in, picking up on one of the themes that Christina spoke about. And as we embark on any journey, particularly if it's not a familiar journey, and we haven't done it repeatedly, um, there's often an excitement there, isn't there, when we embark on that journey, but often trepidation as well about what we're going to encounter on our journey. And really it's being open to what the experience is. And in a sense, that's all I'm saying to us, let's try and be as open as we can to what is going to unfold in this journey, because it will have eases and it will have difficulties. It won't be of one flavor throughout. It will go up and down, it will go through valleys, and it will go through beautiful landscapes, and sometimes it will get quite dark. But it's all there to be experienced. And mixing metaphors furiously, it's an experiment. <laughs> yeah. It's an experiment that we engage in, and really being open to what we're going to discover in that experiment, just like we're open as we enter into the journey to what we're going to discover, what we're going to see. And this is the important thing, and again, just picking up on something that has already been said, to engage in that, really, we have to be present. We have to be as fully present as we are able to at any moment, because that's where we're going to discover things. That's where we're actually going to encounter those things in that present. The German poet Goethe once says, the, the present is our alone is our happiness. It's not out there in the future. It's certainly not in the past in simple nostalgia. It's only open in this present moment, and that's what we're, in a sense, opening onto and learning to discover in this practice. Now ready to, in a sense, what I want to talk about in my little section here, which is something you've all heard, and you're going to say, oh no, he's going to do the usual thing. He's going to talk about precepts. <laughs> yeah. Those who've been on retreat probably heard this endless times, precepts. I want to put it slightly differently. It's, you know, first of all, as again, this is something you probably have heard, the precepts are the container by which we hold this retreat so that it becomes safe for everybody who's here, including yourself. But it's also much more than that. These are reflections that we can engage in, in our week, in our experiment, on our journeys, whatever metaphor works for you. Um, ways of being able to explore elements of our life, which I would actually talk about as being the moral and the ethical elements of our lives. And some of them will be strange, and I'll point them out as obviously as we get to them as I go through these precepts. The very worst possible way 
I think, of describing these precepts is of a list of thou shalt nots. Yeah. And actually, sometimes popular books on Buddhism actually list them that way. You know, don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie, you know, and don't engage in taking drink and you know, engage in you know, taking substances, basically, which affect the mind. And they just come as a straight list. And it basically misses out everything that's interesting about these. Everything that actually is valuable and worthwhile about these. One of the things that Buddha didn't really do was set down a lot of prescriptions. He gave guidances, rules by which we can move and explore our lives, both on retreat and outside of it. So when we talk about the precepts as being this container for retreat, it's actually much more a container for our lives rather than a container just simply for a retreat. But they're obviously very important in this, as I say, for all of the reasons of safety. So when we look at these precepts fully, um, they're much more interesting, actually much, much more interesting. I won't do it with all of them, but you know, for the first precept, it's a, to undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the, uh, thou shalt not kill kind of um, condensation of this obviously is included in that, but it's far wider. I hope you see that. This is far wider. This is about relationships of harm, you know, including how we harm ourselves, not how we just how we harm others, but how we can harm ourselves. So this is really important because sometimes we wittingly engage in harmful actions and activities, both to ourselves and others, but sometimes unwittingly. You know, those things which, again, have been outlined by both Christina and the Kinchino, habits, reflexive patterns, or reflect, you know, unreflective patterns of mind, which just keep coming to the fore you know, in our experience, and we keep doing to ourselves and to others again and again. And they're reflected in some of the other precepts, particularly in the precept of speech which we'll come to in a minute. So when we talk about this first precept, this precept about refraining from engaging in harm to living beings, it's so wide. And as you see, I hope you can see that it's not just about here. It's not just about, you know, I don't know, squidging the, the, the creepy crawly that you happen to be frightened of. It's much, much more about all of those relationships of harm that we can engage in. Equally, when we come to the second of the precepts, which is often just don't take things, don't steal, it's actually to refrain from taking what is not offered. Yeah? And so it's about how we appropriate things, yeah? which obviously includes that element of stealing, and they will all include that basic list, which is the way they're so often listed in, in these more popular works. But it's something much, much more. What acts of appropriation we are, are we engaged in? Again, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly, we appropriate things. In our places of work, sometimes we can make the old telephone call privately, send the odd email, take the paper clips, take some paper. You know, all these little things that we probably say, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, but one of the things that you'll learn as we go through the week is that that way that we incline our mind and those 
actions that we engage in mutually reinforce each other. So the more that we do these things, the more we create a state of mind and the more that mind is inclined to do those things in our lives. So this is very important, not just about the stealing, but the ways in which we appropriate. And as I often used to point out to students, and still do, you know, appropriating others' ideas, appropriating their words. You know? There's all sorts of ways, or, and a very important one that I find is so, so, act, so actively important in interrelationship is how you appropriate another's time. You know? We often take people's time, don't we? We notice it when it's taken from us. You know, somebody pins you to the wall and speaks at you. For quite a while, and you know, how do you feel? How do you feel when that's being you know, that time, that precious time that we sometimes have, is being taken away from us? When we have it and we freely offer it, it's quite different is, than when we have it taken away from us. So, this is about acts of appropriation: how we take things from others without it being offered. Yeah. And again, I would reflect on your own situation and reflect both here in this particular spot in this particular retreat, but also in the much wider context of our lives. Third precept. Seems really easy. Don't engage in sexual misconduct. Yeah. Actually, the really interesting bit gets left out, which is it's actually about refraining from sensual and sexual misconduct. Yeah. Now, obviously, the latter is included in the former. And actually, the way that it's translated often in these ordinary you know, texts that we find giving introductions to Buddhism says a lot about the way that we think about things. Sensual indulgence is actually quite a big activity in our cultures, isn't it? Yeah. Eating too much, engaging in too much sensual activity, being stimulated again and again and again, that in obviously can include addiction to sexuality, but also this sense of just indulging all of our senses again and again and again. And I say this because, and I think both the Kinchino and Christine have heard me say this many times, because there is one thing that takes on dramatic importance on a retreat when a lot of things have been taken away from you. You're living this routine all of those distractions, you know, such as speech and being asked not to read and write so much as we perhaps do in ordinary life, is taken away from you. There's something that looms on the horizon which is very large and it becomes the focus of the retreat. It's called food. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, often it can be, I don't know, um, a retreat on food interrupted by bouts of meditation. And so, so much of our time and energy can be consumed by thoughts about what's going to be there for the next meal. Yeah. Now, I'm slightly joking about this, but this is obviously very important because in a sense it shows how our senses can be captured, you know, how our senses are always looking for things. And this can apply when we're just walking in the garden, constantly, constantly looking for something to stimulate the eyes, for beautiful sounds, for smells. In ordinary life, we indulge these, don't we? You know, 
we often indulge these. This is a chance to actually look and examine that tendency of the mind to move in those ways. And when we move on to the fourth precept, this is a really weird one, isn't it? Because you've just, you know, Kinchino has just gone on about the, the benefits and the value of silence and what in this tradition is often called the noble silence. I love that distinction because if you're talking about a noble silence, there's obviously a silence which isn't noble at all. It's just enforced. You know? um, it's something you put up with. It's something you tolerate. And it's not that kind of silence. But this is a precept about speech. Weird, isn't it? We've been asked to, you know, um, basically, to refrain from false speech. Well, you're going, well, I'm here in silence. Yeah. How can I engage in false speech? But have you noticed, actually, even when you're in silence, how you never stop talking? Yeah. That's that chattering mind. It's talking away. It's creating narratives. It's creating stories. Yeah. There's one English feminist author who writes this wonderful magical realist novel and in it, where all the characters do weird and wonderful things, you just find it peppered in occasionally, this little phrase which is, trust me, I'm telling you stories. Yeah. And isn't that what goes on in our narratives? There's a kind of little voice going, trust me, I'm telling you stories, this is true, what's going on? That person is like that over there and my judgments are right about them. Yeah. So we invent, and in a way, even in our silence, we're engaging in a degree of false speech. We're inventing, making judgments which really have really very little bearing to reality in situations where we can't speak, we can't know, we can't engage in these ways. And so it really highlights that tendency of our mind to do what we often just outwardly verbalize. Yeah telling ourselves stories about ourselves, what's possible and what's not possible. Yeah. So false speech is there, it's actually part of this. It's part of, in a sense, the silence. It's what's interrupting constantly the silence and being able to reside in a sense of spaciousness. And then sometimes that gets extended on certain retreats and much more traditional retreats, for example, in Asia, that will get extended into looking at other qualities of speech, again, all going on in silence, which is, for example, harsh speech, those very harsh judgments, which can be linked, again, to the, the false judgments that we make, you know, the harsh judgments we make on ourselves and others. You know, look at that person in the queue, the way they're pushing in, you know. The way, they, you know, way they're eating their food. The way they flounce into the room. You know, we're making those harsh judgments. Often. We're sometimes, in a sense, engaging in enmity. Divisiveness in our internal speech. And that's another characteristic that's often being asked for us to look at. We're being asked to look at. There's a tendency to divide persons, you know, between those I like and those I don't like, and we have this kind of divisions going on in our little narratives going on in our head. And then, of course, there's the endless, the endless, the endless chatter, which is the fourth one. You know, so we have these four divisions of speech, false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and just chatter. You know, sometimes it's called idle chatter. It just goes nowhere, does it? You know? 
And actually, if you think about that, I don't know if you've kind of reflected on that, just for, even for a second, if you reflect on that, how much is left to be said if we cut those things out? <laughs> yeah. How much do we have to say if we actually begin to really examine our speech in terms of those qualities and really start to say something? This is an opportunity to examine all of that. And then finally, of course, we have this injunction, rule of training to refrain from taking things which are going to cloud the mind, disturb the balance of the mind. Now, one might think this is just a typical kind of religious prudery. You know, stop us having fun and all of that. But actually, there's something much more serious going on here. It's not just about that, and it's not a, a thou shalt not, bear in mind. It's about actually looking at our relationships with the sorts of you know, recreational things that we do, such as drinking alcohol. Um, it's nothing to do, obviously, with prescription drugs. It's to do with taking drugs which will disturb the balance of the mind, cloud the mind. Um, and I think you can see something going on there in those very phrases, clouding the mind, stopping us seeing clearly. If you think about this process that Christina introduced, Akinchino followed up on, this process of bhavana, you know, one of the things that we're cultivating, really actively trying to bring into being in our experience on a retreat such as this, is the cultivation of clarity the cultivation of really seeing. And I use that as a metaphor for all of our senses. Yeah, really, really being able to be in contact with that. And I hope you can see what's going on here in this precept, is to examine that which in a sense is pulling in the opposite direction to what we're actually engaging in here. Yeah? If I'm trying to clarify the mind and create this clarity of being able to see much, much more clearly why do we take something which is going to pull in completely the opposite direction. So it's actually like having polar opposites. On the one hand, I'm trying to clarify the mind, to create clarity, clarity of thought and action, actually, and speech. And on the other hand, deliberately taking something which is going to disturb that balance. So out of this list... It's not just simply a list of thou shalt nots, as I said right at the beginning. It's a set of, it's a set of, of really useful tools for opening up an examination of our moral, ethical life in a very simple way. I mean, they're very, very basic, aren't they? But beginning to look at ways in which we perhaps engage in harm, appropriate when something isn't being offered, engaging sensual, sometimes sexual misconduct, but certainly the sensual one I would actually really actively encourage you to look at, to engage in all those forms of speech, I mean, it helps us to look at that, and then to look at our relationships with the sort of things that we do sometimes recreationally, and whether it's actually pulling in the opposite direction of where we want to go. So this is a real opportunity on retreat to do that as part of your journey. This is part of your journey as well. And, you know, hopefully you'll discover a lot as you go through if you use these as little things just to drop in occasionally into what we're doing 
in this week to see how they land in terms of our examination of our morals and ethics in this. Okay, thank you. Okay, so to end the evening, we'd like to uh, just take part in a short sitting period. But before we do that, you you might want to take a minute, if it's helpful, just to, to stand up, to stretch. <laughs> 